know, he's kidding himself if he thinks his old girlfriend's still carrying a torch for him. And you're kidding yourself if you think every woman's like you. They're not, you know. Duty calls three o'clock tea. Howdy, cowboys. How y'all doing? Welcome to ABC Wulong Club, an episode-by-episode digest of Cowboy Bebop. My name is Steve Cuff. And I'm Colin Tanner, and every week at OptimismVaccine.com, we're celebrating the 20th anniversary of Cowboy Bebop. We're giving you behind-the-scenes info, fan theories, creator history, Bebop influences, and so much more. And Steve, we're here. Double digits, baby. Yeah, them double digits. And we've got the entire crew together. All four of them. And it's the return of Ganymede. That's true. And I'll say, personally, I like this one a smidge more. But I guess we'll have to debate that. You do enjoy your monkey missile. I do. And I think it's fair to say that this episode is mostly about Jet Black. And that's why this week for Bebop History, we're going to be talking all about the English voice actor, Bo Billingsley. Before we get started, Steve, how are you feeling about Jet's voice acting in general so far? Or I should say Bo's voice acting so far. It's good. I mean, it, it definitely has kind of like a hard edge cool kind of black exploitation type of character. I keep going back to like he's got like a Samuel L. Jackson kind of vibe to him, but he's a lot more relaxed than Samuel L. Jackson tends to be in movies. Absolutely. Bo is probably my favorite voice actor in the series re-watching the show. He's an all-star. He doesn't have a bad moment. Every line delivery is perfect. And I hate to start off with a mystery, but we actually have no idea how old Bo is. Oh. Some sites like Aaron Movie Database say he was born in 1953, while Wikipedia says he was born in 1940. 44. Either way, he's an old man. Growing up in Charleston, South Carolina, he became active in sports at a young age. But before long, his family moved across the country to Merdeen, Connecticut. That's a pretty significant jump, wouldn't you say, going from the South to Connecticut? Yeah, a little bit different there, especially Charleston. Now, Bo followed his passion for sports into Maloney High School, where he lettered in baseball, football, and basketball. Now, on to college, he actually co-captained the UConn football team and were the first team ever in the team's history to help lead them to victory over Yale. This is so weird because with this information that we are armed with, it seems like it would be simple to ascertain how old he was when these things happened. Like, can't we do a little detective work here? How did how did Wikipedia and IMDb have such drastically different thoughts on what his age was? All he did was be a part of a few historic events that would normally be determined by age. We have no idea. He does mention going to college in the 60s, though. Now, academically, he actually graduated with a degree in political science before attending law school and passing the Connecticut bar. But his law career would take him to Germany as an army JAG captain, taking on murder and AWOL cases, eventually learning German and returning to Maryland to teach law. Can we just stop for a moment here? We are talking about the voice of Jet here. We are not talking about a presidential candidate. Yeah, this is kind of weird. He seems like he should be a senator. Seriously, doesn't he sound like he's Captain America? Like he's the greatest person at sports, and he's also a captain, and he's a lawyer. No, no, no. He's an army lawyer. A bilingual army lawyer? (laughs) Yeah, who's going to Germany. An international debt-setting all-star athlete army lawyer who then goes and does cowboy bebop. Well, here's why. Eventually, one of his fraternity brothers asked him if he would like to lead in a production of Emperor Jones, which is basically a story about a man losing his damn mind. Now, the reason being was that the campus had become split during the Vietnam War. The jocks stayed to themselves, the art crowd stayed to themselves, and his frat brother thought that if he could have a jock being the lead in the play, it would bring everyone together as one. And it worked. And just like that, Bo had the acting bug, performing in a number of plays. Also, after seven years, he was ready to hang up being a lawyer. He says he couldn't stand the feeling of conflict and having to contradict everything someone else would say, which uh, probably explains why he's not on Twitter much. (laughs) He actually only has two tweets. One of them says, I have my first tweet. And the other one's like, come to this fan convention. (laughs) Could you actually imagine that, though, being a lawyer and having to think ahead of what someone else is going to say so that you can contradict it? That would drive you insane. So he actually took off for Hollywood and began acting in television. And I could tell you what shows he was in and what episode titles. (laughs) But come on, these are just too good. We have to read them out loud. Steve, will you do the honors? Why, yes, Colin. He was on the show Moonlighting, the episode Brother, Can You Spare a Blonde? Also Colin's favorite Angela Lansbury show, Murder, She Wrote. The episode... Three strikes and you're out, which sounds like baseball murder to me. Colin, I know there's not much in this world that you love more than Jimmy Schmitz, which is why I'm sure you're pleased that he was on an episode of NYPD Blue and the episode Oscar Mayer 
Wiener. That's Oscar, comma, Meyer, comma, Wiener. And finally, my personal favorite, the show that raised me, The A-Team. He was on an episode of The A-Team, and the episode was Incident at Crystal Lake, which I don't recall, but in my mind, I'm hoping that's a crossover between the Friday the 13th franchise and The A-Team. Now, this is funny because Bo said that he always had to be sedated when he was flown to Germany. Now, technically, his first acting role was with a puppet when he was voice acting back in New York, but eventually he moved on to doing overdubs for foreign films and live action scenes like Xena and even Jackie Chan movies. We talked about that in a previous episode. And later on, he was the narrator for the History Channel. Go figure. Oh, that's weird. You can kind of hear him and then be like, oh shit, yeah, I can see the tanks rolling in. Now sadly, the fast pace of the industry also means he had no idea what his roles were most of the time. But his first anime role was DJ in Street Fighter 2, the animated movie. You flying kind of low tonight. If you want the USO, you in the wrong place. Or are you looking for DJ? I came with a warning. Shadow Law's after you. Yahoo! They are some nasty pieces of work. I am honored. I'm not joking. Ease up, man. It's just my sense of humor. Besides, what does Shadow Law want with me? He was also Gohan in Hironi Kenshin, which was only the first episode. The big guy that couldn't use his right hand. He was also Oji Tanaka in The Legend of Black Heaven. And of course, Jet Black in Cowboy Bebop. During his first Bebop session, Bo wasn't exactly sure how he wanted to sound. He tried a southern accent at first, but Mary Elizabeth persuaded him to just use his natural voice. And I can say we're all better for that. Yeah, I'd say so. Not to say that southern accents are bad, but fake southern accents are really bad. Although his is probably more authentic than most, seeing as how he grew up in Charleston, right? I guess so. Mary Elizabeth McGillan has said that he landed the Bell Peppers in beef line perfectly, and he never missed a beat after that. Bo says that he very first saw Jet as a more relaxed and confident character, but once he discovered his vulnerability, he said Jet became a fully shaped character, and we'll definitely be talking about his performance in this episode. Now, apparently Spike's voice actor, Steve Bloom, would leave him notes like, hey Jet, don't screw this up, because like most animated features, they performed independently, and then in post-production, it's all put together. Now, Steve Bloom and Bo are still friends to this day. In fact, Bo unsuccessfully tried to teach Steve how to golf once. Apparently, it did not go well. Well, coming from another Steve, I can say that, yeah, fuck golf. It's hard. I don't ever want to do it. So I'm never going to be successful in the corporate world. Now, here's why I love Bo so much. He's a huge fan of Cowboy Bebop. There's a really bizarre bonus feature on the DVDs where everyone that was doing the voice acting, they're all in a room together eating dinner. Or actually, they're outside eating dinner. And then there's airplanes going over and they have to cut around it. It's a really weird bonus feature. But whenever there's a question about Cowboy Bebop, about characters, about episodes, everyone looks at Bo. And he explains not only what the episode is, but what it was about. He's awesome. Now, since then, he's been in a number of live action shows such as Bones. Weeds, Hannah Montana the movie, Just Jordan, All of Us, and Star Trek Into Darkness. Yes, really. But despite his popularity, Bo is your average all-star athlete, grandpa, international army lawyer, stage, screen, and voice actor, just like everyone else. Now, Steve, the title of the episode, Ganymede Elegy. That's not a song. It isn't. What is an elegy? It is a, well, I mean, first of all, I want to say it's not a song, but a very rhythmic uh, title for an, an episode. Uh, an elegy is, a, well, it's a poem, uh, specifically one that usually laments death. They're very sad. It's hard to define. Like, specifically, they're supposed to be about death, but also there are things that are considered elegies that aren't actually about death, and they're just, like, sad and kind of abstract. Oh, man, so that thing I was writing in high school, those were elegies. The moonlight touches the tombstone. No, that was just Colin's creative writing teacher was encouraging him too much. But yeah, anyways, famous examples of elegies. So you've got, like, Emily Dickinson's Because I Could Not Stop for Death, Walt Whitman's Oh, Captain, My Captain, and Bill O'Reilly's You Can't Fire Me. Well, cool. I learned something about poetry today. Now, Steve, when did episode 10, Ganymede Elegy, air? Thanks for asking, Colin. It aired on TV Tokyo on May 8th, 1998, on my personal favorite television channel, Wow Wow, on December 26th, 1998, and on Adult Swim, September 30th, 2001. Wow. So the same night that people were watching Jamming with Edward, they had to switch to this one. That's a hard pivot. It is a little bit different of an episode, that's for sure. Well, this episode was directed by Hirokazu Yamada, who we last saw on Heavy Metal Queen and is one of my personal favorites. We'll be talking a lot about his use of animation and not animation in this episode. And it was written by Akihiko Inari, who will go on to write two more episodes with very similar tones to this one. I really like the opening of this episode, Colin. I know why. For obvious reasons. It opens on Ayn's face. It looks so sweet. The precious, precious baby. So you see Ayn, and then you see this guy 
guy who's kind of like tied up. So clearly like some bounty that they got or, or whatever. And he's like, dog, Burr. like he's just being like typical, typical, like cartoonish, grumbly criminal. And then something kind of amazing happens that I did not see coming. And it actually made me laugh. And it actually made me say for the first time, I think I might like Ed a little bit. I love Ein just barking up a storm, just having a good old long bark, even though he's annoying this guy. And that guy does kick a pee-pee you can. The second time we've ever seen a pee-pee you can. Oh, it's like the space Pepsi. Yeah, I think it was episode five that we saw that. But anyways, th- there's this great part where you see like a, like a vent basically drop down and smack into the guy and or hit the floor. And he's just like, what? And then Ed just drops down like Spider-Man or some shit and just like bashes the guy in the head. And then there's this whole sequence where the camera kind of zooms out and you just see Ed on the ground just sort of like rolling around for no reason and the guy is just like what are you (laughs) and it's great because it's just like it's just like circus tumbles yeah for no reason but it's yeah it's just fun and it's (laughs) there's no reason like it has nothing to do with the plot or anything ed literally has a lion's roar at one point while looking at the guy it kind of reminds me a bit of uh almost like a, a sadistic spongebob squarepants but of course for some reason ed can't stand that guy doing nothing well i guess he kicked the can at ein and so ed decides the best thing to do is to jump on him stare at him bite his face and then bite his leg so why did this make you like ed so much i don't know i mean if you're gonna get tortured it's 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 adorable torture if you think about it with ein uh i, I don't know i i think it just it made me appreciate just ed's place on the bebop and how ed fits in to the, the rest of the crew in that dynamic. And that is just chaos, basically. That is absolutely true. And since Ayn is just a hyper-intelligent animal, like, it, it's fun to watch them team up together. That's very true. And that's kind of the thing about Bebop, is we've talked about in the past, where they'll have those non-sequitur funny moments when things get too serious. You can tell that Ed is going to be collecting all of those moments now. That is going to be her domain. Now we hard pivot to Jet's stoic face just staring down at the pocket watch. It's so intimidating to go from happy fun dog biting scene to old man stares at a watch in the bleakness of space. But we're going to be seeing this a lot throughout the episode. It's just Jet's eyes. When he's really concentrated, he's super intimidating. Now, I know we've talked about how Bebop plays with the past a lot, and they're just so good at it. They give us little glimpses into characters without giving us the full story, but it's not like a plot twist like, oh, what's that? I need to know. But more that gives us the full story and that there's like an emotional truth to it, and it feels like we're connected with the characters more. And that's what happens right here with Jet, having that really sad memory of walking into a lonely room and finding a note and then watching a woman walk away in the rain and then turn around and look at him. In a show that loves film noir... (laughs) This is like, it encapsulates every film noir movie. Like, it's just one trope after another. But it works, like, and it fits with the show. And I don't think you could even say it's ripping off this movie, because I love film noir. And if I if I knew what movie it was borrowing from, I'd be like, that's where it is. But I think it's just, like you just said, it's the stylistic element, more so than the narrative element that's, that's using this. Yeah. And yes, there's no fatalism, so it's not technically noir, but it's a style too, guys. Come on, give us that. But of course, Jed is interrupted because... Spike is telling him that he hasn't actually called in for landing permission yet, which is kind of cool because we see that you don't just fly to a planet and land on it. You have to call in or else, the, you know, you'd be a smuggler or something. So the police are trying to keep some sort of order. And I feel bad for Jet right here, how Faye and Spike are kind of teaming up on him like, oh, why aren't you paying attention? Why aren't you doing your job? When he's really the only responsible person here. We get this really weird scene where uh, Faye tells Spike that Ganymede is his home satellite and teases him about meeting an old girlfriend. But then she looks at Jet and says, no, maybe it's you. And he, he gets mad at her. Ganymede's your home satellite, isn't it? You weren't thinking of some sweet thing from your past, were you? Someone who cried over you, huh? <clears throat> or maybe it was somebody who made you cry. Didn't I just say you're obnoxious? Hello. But this we know that's Ganymede. not true. Spike is born on Mars. He said in the first episode, what's going on here? I think Faye's just making fun of them. And also, I wouldn't be surprised if Faye as a character doesn't pay attention to anything anyone else says. Do you think Jet would actually open himself up that much, though, and talk about where he's from? I don't, maybe casually, but I don't know. He, he doesn't seem to be that emotionally honest. A, a little bit with Spike, but not with a lot of the other characters. So Spike is the closed off one. Everyone else is kind of an open book then. Anyway, Jet finally gets that phone call through, and he talks to an old ISSP friend, Donnelly, who calls Jet the Black Dog. Which is totally dorky. <laughs> I'm the Black Dog. I bite his stuff and I don't like going black dog. Let's be honest though, 
all the police nicknames, even in the real world, are really, really dorky. Yeah. Even the fictional ones, Dirty Harry. Mm. I love that little moment though where Faye's like, oh yeah, okay, that makes sense. Used to be a cop, that's why we don't get along. Oh, and Spike lights his seventh cigarette. Now we cut to the title card of yet another version of Stellar by Moore, this time with a vocalist and a piano. Uh, the problem is that this is one of the tracks that was never released on an album. I actually went to the subreddit for Cowboy Bebop just to ask people if anyone had a copy of the song, and no one did. Though technically it's known as Piano Bar 2, even though it borrows the same melody from Stellar by Moore and Memory and The Singing Sea. Uh, the first Piano Bar is that song that usually closes up episodes like episode 5. Now The Singing Sea, like I said, has a vocal track, which is in English, and the lyrics are really weird. It describes a rainbow rat, a checkered cat, and how a mouse is pleased that the moon is cheese. So, you know... Drugs. Also, I hate to point that out, but there's that really weird delivery where Donnelly says Gal Lisa instead of Elisa. Oh, Gal Lisa. Just kind of stuck out to me. I, lo- I love the, uh, the the plot convenience of the whole Donnelly thing. It's just like, oh, yes, your friend is the cop that answers the phone for the whole planet. And also, he still knows your ex-girlfriend and is deeply familiar with what she is currently doing. Well, I guess it's kind of like a... Convenience! It is incredibly convenient. Yeah, but I mean, it, it's whatever. Like, I'm not going to nitpick it, but it's just it's just funny. Donnelly does mention that Elisa's probably having a really rough time because there's a recession going on, which leads me to question this. Is Ganymede in a recession or is the universe in a recession? Because things don't look good. Ah, I have no idea. But I, I do like how Cowboy Bebop predicts the 2008 like housing crisis, basically, 10 years in advance. Because <laughs> there's that whole conversation that Jet has later with her where she's just like, bah, 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 and, you know, we're losing the bar. And he's just like, yeah, you know, paying mortgages and banks are predatory and blah, blah, blah. And I'm like, whoa. <laughs> I, d- I just, I wonder, like, because the universe is so grimy and dirty, I wonder if there's, like, a big-time recession going on. Maybe this is a post-boom era for space expansion that we don't know about. Oh, yeah. Gammy's kind of kind of pretty. Like, we, we get to see it and uh, just with all these establishing shots on the planet. Because I, d- I don't think we really got much of it the last time that we were on Ganymede. We just knew that it had a lot of water. I think we saw just, like, the planet from space, but we never actually saw the planet itself. Wait, so what are you talking about? We were told there were 8 million people there, and we saw one man in a room that was sweating. That's yeah, all you need to know about the planet. That's all you need to know. Tell, don't show. Uh, but yeah, it's got kind of like a little French Riviera vibe. There's a ton of water and the like, little floating man-made islands everywhere. And, you know, it's pretty nice. Do you really think it's the French Riviera? I just thought of something sunny and scenic. And I didn't want to say Florida because I fucking hate Florida. It looks kind of like tropical a little bit. Yeah. But also there's, there doesn't seem to be a ton of vegetation because it does seem to be almost entirely water. There's a there's like a working class element to it because we see all the fishermen on the docks. There's They're having a smoke and laughing. And there's very li- limited animation. The people aren't moving. Something in the background usually is. Yeah. Maybe the water's moving while the people are pulling up the uh, catch. I, when I saw this, I'm not kidding. I thought, oh, it's the same director as episode one and four and seven because he always shows the people. He showed the people on the airplane. He showed the people in TJ. And when I saw this episode, I went, oh, it's the people. So clearly that must be the director. But no, we have this other guy who did Heavy Metal Queen, who's also been very good at giving us background characters like uh, at that bar. Let's talk about Ganymede for a second because it's totally like in real life, like an actual moon of Jupiter. And it's gigantic. Yeah, I'm going to drop some Neil deGrasse Tyson shit on you. You ready for this? It's actually larger than Mercury, and it's two-thirds the size of Mars. But because it orbits Jupiter instead of the sun, it's not a planet, duh. Its surface does show an abundance of magnesium sulfate and possibly sodium, which is why scientists assume there is, like, water ice on it, which is pretty rad. Okay, well, I, actually, I, I didn't know that, but that makes a lot more sense why they decided to make it all about seafood, because this is the same place where they have the Ganymede sea rat. But there is something I did look up, because there's a weird thing going on in this episode, and I can't figure it out. So you remember when Jed is looking at that pocket watch? Did you actually look at the watch and really examine it? Because it has 15 hours, not 12. That's kind of weird. There must be space hours. Ganymede, what is the day for that? Oh, it's seven days and three hours. Okay, what about Jupiter? How long is a day there? Oh, it's nine hours. Almost 10, but like nine hours, 56 minutes. I have no explanation for why Jet's pocket watch is 15 hour increments. I'm guessing it's because they went, oh, I bet like time's different on this planet. So 15, like that's it. Back to the show. I'm sure you'll be very excited for this, Steve. We see a very sleepy, sleepy Spike typing in his information and receiving the bounty for that guy. Go ahead. That means the Bounty County 
hits two. The bounty county, I like I that. I just said that. That's a thing now. It makes it makes our bounty counter cuter. It's so cool just to see Spike just casually putting that information in. It's not a big event or anything. I'm walking outside and talking to Faye, who's all like, oh my God, Jet's actually going to go visit his ex-girlfriend and Spike trying to be like, not every woman's like you. But of course, the most important moment in this scene is we get to see Ed swinging Ayn around and flinging him into the air and then catching him again. Yeah, that's pretty sweet. Are you starting to feel that relationship? I'm liking it. Yeah, so this, this next scene, I mean, it's pretty inconsequential, but it's also, uh, I, I don't know, like when I, because I'm new to the idea of anime, like I have some preconceived notions and, you know, there's certain things, there's giant robots, there's the tentacles and there's the anime titties and this is anime titties. Like this is just. Well, we'll explain to people what you're talking about. Okay. So Faye is like, she's going to like sun herself on the, like the deck of the ship basically. So she's outside and. She's got some sunscreen that Ayn's dicking around with. And it's a perfect day to do that because it's nice and sunny out. Yeah, cloud yeah, in the yeah. sky. But like the camera just, it leers at her and she's wearing this like ridiculously tiny swimsuit and her waist is like a pencil. And the, But then she's just got like, again, when you make fun of like, oh, anime titty, like that's this. It's just, she's very, she's a buxom lady. She is. And uh, like the swimsuit is so ridiculous. And obviously people can dress wherever they want, but you can tell this is an artist being like, yeah. Yeah. This is not Faye with agency. This is her just, this is the artist being like, my boner. But I do love that Ed immediately ruins that moment by just rubbing her face up her leg, trying to get some of the sunscreen. Yeah. No, that's great. And then Ed has this whole interaction where uh, she's like, you know, why are you doing this? You're such hopeless romantics. Hey, Faye, what'd you put that stuff on for? Beautiful skin can only be maintained by tireless efforts, which are ultimately totally futile. Understand? Yes! Futile! Useless! Now you're noticing there, right there, that when she says futile... Ayn barks. Ed and Ayn are creating this bond. And if you remember back in uh, the last episode, right when Ed appears on the screen, everyone goes, who's that kid? And right away, Ayn barks at the computer. There's a relationship there and it's just so damn adorable. Well, because Ed can't get any of that suntan lotion, she has to go fishing instead. We got to talk about this. What is that thing she pulls up out of the water? The weird multi-limbed feather? Gamamine sea rat? That's that can't be true. the sea That's rat. That's true. No, it's just some fucking space fish. I don't know, man. I mean, it's not an alien. No, it, I mean, it is because it's not on Earth. Ergo, we would consider it to be alien, but it's a fish with teeth and it bites the uh, the line. And then it's like, ooh, anime. Do you think that's because they brought the fish to Earth and then they evolved? That's how I'm rationalizing this because they seem to not treat that other guy from the previous episode too seriously when he brings up aliens. So they haven't encountered life yet. It's indigenous life on a fucking planet. It's not indigenous if it was brought there. How would you know? Why does it matter? It matters to me. I don't want there to be aliens in the Cowboy Bebop universe. The, the best part is, is you're the only one who's thought about this and the creators never did. I think they did. I swear. I think they were all around a, they were all around a table smoking cigars and be like, no goddamn aliens. That right there... That's an evolved tuna fish. Or maybe it's what happens when you put a squid in space. Uh, you know what? In fact, I don't think this is too weird, too crazy of an idea, because recently scientists have discovered that maybe octopuses existed prior to life on Earth. So there you go. Finally, we see Jet walking around the uh, rundown area, and he enters La Fin. You were talking about the French Riviera earlier, Steve. What do you think about the name La Fin? Uh, well, we also mentioned that film noir has some fatalism in it. So if, you're, if your flashback film noir girlfriend moment is going to evolve into what she doing today, of course she owns a bar. Of course she's down on her luck. And of course it's called The End in French. It's so bad. But it's kind of great. But it's so bad. Uh, Jet walks in and he spots that sketched out looking dude named Rand. Rand. All right, fine. I guess that's a name. Shouldn't judge. In the future, I'm sure they have all sorts of different names. I mean, <laughs> the protagonist is named Spike, and here's Jet, and we're meant to take that seriously. But Rint is, uh, I guess you could say he's a mostly innocent man who's nervous because he killed a loan shark. We do get this awesome Dutch angle of Jet looking at him and being uncertain on how to communicate that, you know, he's here to see an ex-girlfriend. But before we get to that, let's talk a little bit about Rint right here. He's not your traditional bounty. He's not an evil guy. He's not a criminal. He's somebody that, right from the get-go, he is racked with guilt. 
you you could tell he's completely like freaked out and and sketched out over something. Like you instantly know, and we learn later because the show explicitly tells us, oh by the way, this guy did a thing and he's in trouble and there's a bounty on him. But before that, it's like you instantly know that something is fucked up and wrong. Do you feel uh, any sympathy towards Rint? I don't feel any sympathy for him in this moment. Oh no! <laughs> but I I think you have to be sympathetic towards him because based on his flashback that he has later of the events that got him into trouble, you can tell that like whatever he did, it wasn't his fault. And he was doing it because he uh, loves Jet's ex-girlfriend and was trying to help her out. So it's just a bad situation all around. Yeah, it's really depressing. Now, I have a theory about this episode, which it's not a theory. This is not this is not something that's like secret and you'd never be able to figure it out in a million years. But watching the way that Jet walks into that bar and he's looking at a guy that's really sketchy. We see him put his hand in his pocket like he's reaching for a gun. The way that Jet is kind of like, oh, you know, I'm just I'm looking for somebody. He's really relaxed in that moment. And we know that Jet can see through facades pretty easily, right? I think the moment he landed there, he became a cop again. He is in his old beat. He knows exactly how to read a scenario. I'm not going to mess with you. You're not going to mess with me. I'm going to de-escalate the situation. I mean, Jet literally owns goggles that allow him to see through facades. Oh, God, like, no. Like, literally. No. <laughs> I put on my x-ray glasses and they say you're a liar and you killed someone. But, you know, I, I feel like he's, he's, he's almost regressing back into his cop role. But we do see that famous drinky bird, which we'll talk about in later. But I do want to mention something, and I want to thank the Cowboy Bebop Wikia for pointing this out. In the background, there's Mr. Peanut. Did you notice Mr. Peanut? Oh yeah, I noticed Mr. Peanut. I'd never noticed until immediately. This. I, I didn't. I didn't know. I, I thought it was just like I don't know. <laughs> is is it supposed to be there? It is definitely Mr. Peanut, though. Well, I know it's definitely Mr. Peanut, but I didn't know if it was copyright infringement or or. If well, it was the Drinky like a thing. Bird is copyright infringement too. <laughs> the Drinky Bird is kind of generic. Like, there's not like the Drinky Bird brand. Like, it's just like a thing that's been around that like fucking like German monarchs were like who. Ooh, this is lovely in like fucking 1860 or something. <laughs> well, okay, Steve, why don't you tell us a little bit about Mr. Peanut? All right, so the story of Mr. Peanut is dumb as hell. The Planners Peanut Company actually held a contest for creating a mascot, and a child named Antonio Gentile came up with the ingenious idea of a fucking peanut with arms and legs. Slow down, Antonio. Save some creativity for the rest of the class, okay, buddy? Uh, planners quickly added a top hat and cane because why the hell not? Whoa, 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 whoa. <laughs> <laughs> what do you mean planters added the top hat and cane? Wouldn't them what did the kid do? He added the arms and the legs. To a fucking peanut? To a fucking peanut. You gotta make him distinguished. He's not just like a, he's not just the planner's peanut man. He's a fucking like man about town. Wow. I wish I could win a contest like that. Hey, the thing you sell, I just drew arms and legs on it. Yeah. Cause the whole idea is like, what if Andrew Carnegie was a nut that is inexpensive and tasty and salted? But hey, anyways, uh, top hat and cane peanut man ran in his first head in 1917. And there's been a longstanding debate, uh, over who actually added the top hat and cane. Oh yeah. Genius idea. Yeah. Really got to debate that one. Let's talk about the drinky bird. The So the drinky bird is the thing that was in front of the peanut, and that's the thing that goes down and drinks the water, right? All right. So anyways, the drinky bird, which is sort of a generic name because I don't think there is like an official name for the drinky bird. Uh, it's got its origins in 18th century Germany in a variety of devices, but it wouldn't take its familiar bird shape until the early 20th century when the Chinese version known as Insatiable Birdie was released. It would later be ripped off in 1945 and patented by two separate Americans. How does that work? I thought pen was supposed to prevent that. I don't know. Beats me, man. Uh, so the toy is like a bit of a physics trick. Uh, again, it's kind of like along the same lines. You ever seen that like desk toy with the balls that just kind of like hell yeah kinda bounce into each other and just keep going perpetual motion? How type else stuff? are you gonna run this company in 1987? Mm-hmm. Exactly. So the uh, the fluid slowly climbs up the bird's neck, and then when it gets like the weight from that fluid, then forces it back down. Oh. Uh, then bobs back and forth before the fluid catches up again. So it's like a whole thing. That's neat. Anyway, back to the show. <laughs> Hey, enough about dumb toy birds. Let's talk about anime. Elisa actually says hello to Jet. And she's happy to see him, you know? I'm not sure how she really feels about it, but I think she's being genuine, right? When she's looking at him and says, oh, stick around, let's have a drink. Of course, uh, Rent is just like, I'm out of here. I'm done. And like runs out the door. Do you think that she's actually happy to see Jet? Or did she never ever want to see him again? Yeah, I think she's genuine. I, I mean, uh, we kind of find out later that she, she left him for valid reasons because she needed to like, find herself. Basically, Jet didn't do anything specifically wrong to hurt her. But we um, see that relationship as soon as 
she hands him the drink and he's like, oh, you got in over your head. And she's yeah. just like, you're already doing it. It's the first thing he says after hello. Yeah. But like, you know, it's been seven years. So even if they did have a big, you know, falling out between the two of them, it's seven years is a long time. It doesn't seem like they did have that falling out, though, because he seems surprised that he came back and there was nothing there. And she just, she ditched. She left. And she doesn't give him an answer, though. He says, I just want to know why. He even says he's not holding it against her. And she won't even give him that answer. Like, ah, it's so brutal. I do want to talk about how they shot this scene, though, where the she's- editing's kind of wonky. Wonky? I think it's brilliant. I, I don't, like, it's- We should describe it first, that the idea that while she is telling Jet that everything is fine, we have these quick cuts to her face. And it's like- Yeah, and then front away shot, from the ceiling. Yeah, yeah. Side shot, and then full uh, right-hand shot. Mm-hmm. But it's, it's very, um, maybe it's because the English voice acting isn't beat for beat like it is with the Japanese. Yeah. So it seems off-center. No, I, I, like, I like the jump cuts, but I do feel like if I watch the Japanese- subtitle version it would probably flow a little bit better uh but there, there's a lot of discord in this scene like you can tell it's like no things aren't right the camera is telling me things that your mouth is not it's weird too because the first shot has to be an omnipotent shot because it's in front of her and jet is slightly to the right of her we don't see jet's perspective until the very last shot there and i think it's just trying to show that i don't know she's performing to everyone perhaps i don't know but i love it because it really puts you on guard immediately whereas any other show would just let them play out and then they'd come back and revise everything now, we do have to play this next clip. I love it so much how she plays that joke on him. Yeah, it was here. Yeah, why? Mm, you know why. You've heard we're married. We have three kids, Jet. Oh. <laughs> kidding, just kidding. It was a joke. Rinse my boyfriend. And uh, how about you? You must be married. No, just wandering around with some weirdos. And, and he does the anime. Uh-huh. Yeah. I just love how she pulls that on him. Just like, oh, we got three kids. Like, no, he's just my boyfriend. Like, that's so mean of her. But it kind of shows that they do have that kind of close relationship that she can just do that to him. Kind of be mean. It's a very loving, but, you know, still picking on him. I, I know he keeps saying I love all these moments, but I just, I love how she's like, oh, you, you must have somebody too. And Jess is like, no, just three weirdos. But yeah. Jet finally pulls out the watch and puts it right on the table, confronting Elisa for leaving him without an explanation. And she just says, ah, I can't talk about it. That was a long time ago. Time never stops. Bye, Jet. Bye. Yeah. Seriously? Yeah. Dick move. Also a little on the nose with the time reference, Elisa. That's true. But the watch was broken. I mean, I'll give it to Jet for being committed to his superstitions. The idea that, yes, he will leave. Once that pocket watch breaks, he's out of there and he sticks to it. And I think that's kind of cool because it shows that he's a very honest person to even keep a promise that he really doesn't have to. And also being honest with her about, you know, how his life is not really all that together. He's a bounty hunter, which is not a good thing in this universe. And he hangs around with three weirdos. Think about it from Jet's perspective for a moment. He's got like this young hottie in a swimsuit. He's got this guy that's always smoking and is dodging his past. He's got a weird dog and he's got a child and none of them are related. Outside the bar, Jet spots Rent, unsuccessfully trying to light a cigarette with a Zippo. Which I did look up a little bit of information on the old Zippo. Very popular in the early 20th century. And they were given to soldiers and during World War II. And they have continued popularity to this day. Every single Zippo that's made right now is made in the USA, baby. No international. But in the future, I guess they're not as good because Rent can't light his. But he can flash back to the horrible trauma of murdering someone the night before. Yeah, he probably forgot to fill it with fluid, the big doofus. Mm-hmm. What are you thinking about this, like, desaturated color, shaky cam, almost like the interrupted Friends of Animation like we saw in yeah. episode one? I, no, I, I I really like this a lot, actually. Um, there's a really cool juxtaposition between him just sort of, like, yeah, like, shakily trying to light the cigarette and just, like, the rhythm of it, the of trying to get this Zippo to light. And it's cool when we see his flashback because, you know, Jets was this kind of, like, desaturated saturated like film noir type looking thing and his it's almost a reflection of of just like the burst of violence like there's all this swirling red and yellow and it also kind of goes along with the sparks that are coming from the lighter like it's all like really integrated well together and and just smart and it also shows us in just like 10 seconds that yeah rent is he's, he's like skittish and he clearly fucked up but at the same time it doesn't look like he did anything horrible like it's not like he you know committed war crimes or you know threw a baby in the river or it looks something. like he prevented something maybe yeah yeah sure i mean we've talked about this in the past about are these flashbacks honest are they subjective or are they objective and i feel like we can kind of say with spikes that they are objective no matter how glorified they are i feel like between jet and rent these are extremely subjective, even though they're shown for the third person. Like, you, there's an emotional state to all of them that's uh, very personal. Because jets were static images of just rain and just 
people standing. Well, except for Elisa walking away. But yeah, I really like this. We get our next scene of Donnelly trying to call in for Jet, but unfortunately he just gets Spike. And Spike's not in a good way either. He almost drops a wrench into the ocean. He almost drops himself in the ocean too. <laughs> That's true. He's also in his casual wear. How nice is that to see him like that? But Donnelly was calling in because there's a bounty that's about to be reported that everyone else is going to know about. And he wanted to give him the lead that it's for rent because he knows that's Elisa's boyfriend. Why is Donnelly telling Jet that? Why does he they're feel- bros. It's a bro move. Is it though? Yeah, he's helping him out. Is he helping him out or helping Rent out or helping Elisa out? Like, is he helping him get revenge? What's his motivation I, I don't here? think he... I mean, why would he want to get revenge? I don't think he knows... She walked out without an explanation, just said goodbye and yeah. left to watch there. But I, I don't think... Like, I, I never got that from Donnelly's initial interaction with him. Like, oh, you're going to see that old bitch, Alicia? Like, it's not like that's not how he reacted. Uh, I think he's just giving him the tip because it's what is it like 1.6 million woolongs or some shit like it's money he's like this I, he even specifically says like hey we haven't put this out yet but this is a thing you should go get it so yeah i think he's just hooking his buddy up to make some money and clearly he knows the area <laughs> and he knows the people involved or at least one of them so it's like it's yeah easy money spike takes off in the swordfish too next to a sun bathing fay that sends her hair flying everywhere in some really fluid animation i love that shot of her just being slightly annoyed that it got all over her face yeah you do you fucking pervert she has a very nice tan wouldn't you say she looks like a hot dog uh no i, I do like this though because the entire time Faye just doesn't give a fuck. Like, she doesn't care what's going on in this episode. Yeah, it's true. I didn't think about it. She's not involved. We see Spike asking around where the location of Le Fin is, uh, including blocking traffic with the swordfish, too. Once again, it's shots of people. We don't need this moment. It could just be Spike showing up later or spotting something. But this adds and makes the universe feel so much bigger that he's talking to that dock worker, that he's talking to that dude on the street, and that they're unknowingly part of this great adventure. I also like his first interaction with that dock worker where he's just like, hey, you know where Le Fin is? And the doctor is like, over there. And then it immediately cuts to like three more instances of Spike trying to find this fucking bar. I guess maybe he's just trying to get rid of him or something. Back inside LaFin, Rent has basically an emotional breakdown. Uh, he calls himself a murderer. And this is where it gets so dark is where it's like nothing can save me. And I, I feel for him. I feel very sympathetic for him where he has that moment. Of course, he's freaked out because Jed is a bounty hunter, but he doesn't even know there's a bounty on him yet. That's how paranoid he is. And he knows that jail will be the end of him. Elisa... Just decides, hey, okay, that's it. We're done. You're freaking out. Let's pack up and let's leave. And you know, that's a very dramatic choice for almost any character in any show. But knowing that she left that note for Jet seven years ago, that just abandoned that entire life, this is a pattern. For all we know, she could have left a bunch of other lives behind too. But let's give some credit here because Spike notices from 200 yards away, <laughs> sees Rent and Elisa in that speedboat. Very impressive. Keen eye. Very keen eye. Seriously. Got that good anime vision. Probably my favorite moment of the episode in terms of action is right when Spike sees them going through that narrow pathway in the water and he actually has to fly up the skyscraper. He actually has to go all the way up vertically and he almost yeah. crashes in a jet. This is, especially compared to the, the last episode, this is like a much better scene in terms of like just the action sequence at the end you know it kind of builds up and by previous episode you mean the the asteroid scene in uh, jamming with edward yes yeah exactly the other cool thing about this is gamamine is this big open planet like all of the the human population they're on these like little metal islands but we're never given the thought that like these are huge like everything seems kind of like scattered and small and the whole world is is just this ocean but during the chase, it still manages to feel really claustrophobic, which is like kind of cool, I think. That's awesome, yeah. Also, I love how when they almost collide into each other, they're almost like, I don't know, like insects, like flies, how they kind of swirl around together and then they decide they're going in the same trajectory. And when Spike tells Jet what's going on, Jet says, I'm going to handle this because he's the black dog. Black dog, black dog, go black dog. So, like, not, let's also not forget that there's that moment where he says, I don't have any regrets about her. Like, he, he tells Spike that, which is kind of weird. He opens up to him for just a second. Or I wonder if he's just monologuing out loud because he's considering all of his options. Love this moment right here. More excellent cinematography where Jed is forced to go like a 90 degree angle and fly into that tunnel to chase after them. And we see that first person uh, point of view perspective of Rint not being able to control uh, his hands. 
like when he's trying to move mm-hmm. the speedboat around and almost crashing into the walls. Jet finally catches up to him and fires his grappling hook right through the engine. And Rint, not understanding his situation or maybe being so panicked, he just guns the engine. I don't think he's a shit. I think he's just like, I mean, he's like manic at this point. He's just like trying to, to get away. He doesn't even care. Let's talk about the symbolism right here. Jet's trying to keep them in one place. Well, you know. Alicia's always running away, always escaping him. And the result is an explosion in between them. You look real smug right now. I thought it really worked. I love that shot though of Alicia just like uh, just like looking at Jet. It's really surreal. Like when she stands up and looks back at him. No, her face animations and even like her, her gestures and her movements uh, during this chase sequence are really interesting because, you know, Rin's like freaking the fuck out and she's super calm. But there's a bunch of shots too of her like fiddling with the gun and and all I kept thinking was, oh man, she's going to blow her brains out. That's really true. And also there's Jet's facial expressions. When he sees Rent outside the bar the very first time, that look he gives him is just haunting. He's staring right through him. And we're seeing that same look right now when he's looking right at Rent, trying to escape before the explosion. But like you said, is she going to blow her brains out or blow his brains out? Let's talk about it. This is almost a recycling of the first episode, yep. Asteroid Blues. And I wanted to ask you about this because you mentioned Lovers on the Lam, the very first episode. Episode, which it fit to a point, even though it was more dramatic and often lovers in the lamp don't have people addicted to drugs. Yeah. What do you say? Is this more authentic to that? Uh, yeah. I mean, it, it does again to a degree. And I think it's another twist on it too, because you have the added wrinkle of it's not quite a love triangle because it's hard to tell where her and Jet are with each other. And I don't think there's romance there. There's just like admiration and mutual respect. Uh, And then also we don't even see like, there's no indication of a traditional romantic relationship between her and Rint either. So it's this very odd setup. But at the same time, she's like totally dedicated to helping him and leaving with him and and, uh, staying, standing by her man, if you will. Is this just closure? Is that what this entire episode is? Is just about closure and they have to go through this, you know, this crazy chase and have explosions and, yeah. and, and almost like shoot each other just because they didn't have that fight mm-hmm. when they broke up all those years ago. And they've been trying to keep it like... Isn't this how you break up with your ex-girlfriend? Well, yeah, absolutely. You know? Walk out and then you get a boat chase a few years later. I do want to mention how after the explosion, the boat is going like, I don't know, 30 miles an hour and then it crashes up against like the concrete dock. Shouldn't they all be terribly injured? They're not seatbelted in. They're be flying out. Airbags. Haven't you ever watched the Hulk Hogan television series, Thunder in Paradise? Well, Jet finally approaches them. Alicia pulls out a gun, telling Jet to stay away, and I love this idea that she has. Leave us alone, please, Jet. There are other bounty heads to catch. You don't need this one. If I let him go now, someone else will be after him tomorrow, and by then you'll be an accomplice. Stay away! That's just how you were back then. Hmm? You decided everything. In the end, you were always right. When I was there with you, I never had to do anything for myself. I wanted to live my own life, make my own decisions, even if they were terrible mistakes. How true of a moment is that where she says you don't need this bounty? Like, she doesn't understand why he's there, and he has to explain, like, you will be an accomplice. I'm helping. Yeah, which is, I mean, he makes a great point. Also, they do kind of need the bounty because they don't have the best track record right now. They just got a bounty earlier in the episode. Yeah, but I mean, come on. Like, that's... Overall, we're not doing great. I just, I feel so bad for Alicia because she says, like, she wants to make her own mistakes, but who's in the right here? And nobody is. That's that's why it's so good. Which isn't to say that, like, we never got any indication that Jet was abusive or controlling. I don't think he was because she doesn't hold that kind of resentment against him. But she also felt like, I, I think she never felt like she could just do her own thing. He always said in the episode, he said, you know, the one thing I could count on is I would come home every night and you'd be there. So basically she was playing housewife and she wasn't living her life. And that's something that she needed to do, which is totally understandable. But at the same time, she's being a dumbass right now because, yeah, don't take money from a loan shark. Don't send your boyfriend to deal with the loan shark and then shoot someone. Don't run away with him. Um, also, let your kindly ex-boyfriend maybe arrest him instead of, you know, some other crazy bounty hunter. Because as we've established in the Cowboy Bebop universe, bounty hunters are reviled dickheads in, in the universe. So... 
you probably don't want to roll the dice with that one. I know we're doing a hard pivot from an emotional truth, but uh, I do like the fact that the gun is shaking in her hand. They're just taking the image of the gun and moving it in animation. It's a really nice touch. But yeah, I, I, I just think that like, I don't know what Jet really wanted out of that relationship because he said, all I needed was for you to be there. And that doesn't sound like the Jet I know. That really does sound like Jet did move on. It sounds like they both have moved on, but because they never had that closure and they probably had a very deep connection that it had to come out like this. Well, and they're both doing a little like, they've been closed off and there's a little bit of posturing going on too because even when she's shaking and she's shooting the gun, you know, she fires off like four or five shots or something like that. Jet doesn't move and it's not like, oh, look, Jet's a badass. But I think he knows like she's not going to fucking shoot him. Well, and also here's the thing. She's not honest. Jet is. When Jet says, oh my God, like what's going on with your life? She's like, oh, it's fine. We're going to go move somewhere else. And that's a lie. <laughs> she's, she's forgetting to mention the entire loan shark and murder and stuff like that. Whereas Jet's like... <sighs> I'm living with three weirdos. He's so open about his life and she's not. So I feel like this is more about her development than his development in some ways, but he still wants that closure, which is why he's willing to risk almost his life to get it. I don't have the name right here, but let's talk about the voice acting of Rint when he is freaking out that Jet has him and is pleading for his life. Uh, uh, oh, no, let go, stop, I don't want to go to prison. Wait, let go, help me, help me, please, please help me. You gotta, oh. And Jet's being so nice to him and being like, everything's going to work out. You're going to get out of jail and you're going to take care of her. Like letting her know like, hey, I'm not still pining for you. So we cut to nighttime, which is really weird because uh, all the cops are there. And I guess there must have been another crime or something that happened in between then because the cops would not be there to pick up a bounty. Because as we remember from episode four, which took place on Ganymede, this is actually related this time. I, I was I was waiting for you to have this meltdown moment. The cops, why are they there? Why are they picking him up? Like literally as I was watching the episode, I, I, kept, I kept thinking like, Oh, Colin's going to have his like bounty slash cops moment in this episode. I'm, I'm excited we're here. I, I just Welcome, I'm, Colin. Yeah, I'm glad that Jet was so lonely and he, he missed Alicia that he saw Twinkle Maria Murdoch went, oh, all right, we're going to bring her to the ship. She's going to be my forever girlfriend. You can never leave. <laughs> what is wrong with him? Why? Ugh, I'm never going to let that go. This is even the exact same satellite. Not planet. It's a moon. It's a satellite. I get it. Well... Elisa's happy, surprisingly, and so is Jet. Jet tells her that the police are probably going to let him out early because it was self-defense. And Elisa thanks him. Jet says it won't be very long because, you know, time never stops. And we see Elisa turn around for the third time. We keep seeing that moment of Elisa turning around. She turns around in that dream sequence with Jet. She turns around when she's in the boat. We see a very dramatic turning around. And she turns around this time, and Jet's not there. He's already walking away. I love that. And he waves goodbye. Oh, what's this? A pocket watch? I don't need this. And the final shot is... Ploop into the ocean. See a space cowboy. How good of an ending is that? Oh, it's great. No, I love this episode. This is a really good one. Why do you like this ending scene so much? It feels like real closure. And, and that's kind of what this was set up to be. It's like, oh, even in the beginning where it's just like, oh, your ex-girlfriend's there. And you're like, okay, so clearly there's going to be some confrontation. Clearly there's going to have to be some closure. And you know, it was still an open wound for him. So it's great because it's so much emotional weight into this pocket wash. Like he literally like zoned out and like dreamed of her. He's clearly been holding on to it for what years? Seven, seven years. Seven years. Seven at least. years. And he's it been holding work. onto this. It stopped working, yeah. and then he left. But he hung onto the but watch. But he hung onto this broken watch. So it's like, yeah, you know what? I dealt with this, and you're living your life okay, in kind of a shitty way. But you know, fuck it. I'm done. And then just boom, right in the water. I love it. I love how that look on his face, like, oh, what's that in my pocket? Like, he forgets what it is. He actually has moved on. Yeah, he's like not, e yeah, he's not even thinking about it. It's just like, mm. But I mean, he actually has moved on. He's physically moving he's physically on. Physically moving on. And she, so when she turns around and he's, she's for the very first time in her life, she's seeing what he always sees, his back and a wave goodbye. I love it. But we need to get to the most important stuff right here. A cigarette counter. One. Spike was smoking a cigarette when he was talking about how Jet zoned out. So that's seven for the series so far. But Dr. Steve, this episode right here, the Inometer, what are you going to give this good pooch? Well, Colin, I'm glad you asked. You know, I, I, had to, I had to do a lot of soul searching for this episode. But let me tell you, if you open your episode with a shot of that beautiful baby, that luxurious corgi child that I love so much, you better bet your sweet ass that the Inometer, it's going one direction. It's going all the way to the right. It's getting a ZEN! What is that exactly? Uh, that's German for 10. Now, Steve, where are we at on the Bounty County? I'm glad you asked as well, Colin, because that's another thing that I love other than the Inometer. On the Bounty County... We got two bounties today, so the bounty county is up to three. Whoa. It's almost like they're successful now. 
And why do you think that is? Because they got all four members. That's right. Well-oiled machine. That's what I'm thinking. Now, obviously, we have opinions about this episode, but Steve, you've been digging in the depths of Funimation Now and Internet Movie Database. Tell us what the internet thought of Ganymede Elegy. I'm sorry, Colin. Did you say something? Uh, I'm just dealing with my throbbing erection that I get when I read IMDb scores. Oh, good. From random yahoos on the internet. Excellent. Great. Uh, Yeah, over at Funimation, it got, you want to guess? You want to guess what it got? No. Four, (laughs) Four stars. Everything is four stars on Funimation. That's the average. And on IMDb, we've got, are you ready? Drum roll. A, a seven. It's it's IMDb. Of course, I got a seven. A 7.0? 7.0. Which is a little bit lower that than some wrong. of them, but it's higher than the last wrong. episode. By a point, it was 6.9 before, now it's a 7.0? Yeah, I, I don't, again, it, it doesn't make any sense to me. Because, I mean, obviously, you have an episode like Fall, Ballad of Fallen Angels or something where it's like, oh, this is clearly very important for the show and has some amazing shit in it, so everybody gives that a 10. But the rest of them, it's like, I, I don't even know. I don't know how these IMDb assholes work. Well, Steve, all together, what did you think of Ganymede Elegy? Oh, this is easily one of my favorite episodes so far. I think it's, I mean, it's right up there with Ballad of Fallen Angels for me. Really? Yeah, no, I, I really like it a lot because this is this is Cowboy Bebop doing everything that it does well. It's funny, it's weird, you know, it has these fun references that are smart homages and not total ripoffs of other things, and it moves at a brisk pace, it's got great action, like, everything that you, if you made a list, it's like, here are the things I like about Cowboy Bebop, this one is checking off all the boxes. Let's talk about that some more, actually, because I, I'm right there with you. The idea that the action scene, we, I, I'm, I'm a broken record, every time we get to this point of the episode, I say the most significant thing is tone, and this maintains that melancholy, even in a chase sequence. And that is so important to this episode. Obviously, they use that excellent uh, guitar song, Elm, during the chase sequence, which really brings in that nostalgic sorrow. I don't know what else you would call it. Elegy jams, baby. And I think that's because it was directed by one of my personal favorites, Hirokazu Yamada. He directed Heavy Metal Queen, which is one of my favorite episodes so far. And I think this shows the range that he has. Obviously, he didn't write the episode, but being able to direct this, it does have almost the same patterns. It really takes its time so that we learn about a character. And we learned a lot about Elisa, maybe not as much about Rent, but we learned a lot about Jet as well. When it's about the characters and it's about the people, my favorite episodes when it's just about shooting guns. Eh. I love the action, but you got to have something behind it. And that moment where there's that huge explosion. Only only this director, only Cowboy Bebop could make that huge explosion be emotional rather than action-packed. Everything about this episode is cliche, the one that got away. And it's even like recycling ideas from episode one, mm-hmm. but it does not feel the same. It no, has its whole it different tone. No, yeah, that's exactly it. It's just, it, it, it works on every level. It's a refinement of everything that the show's been doing well so far. And I think it's safe to say that now Jet is become an infinitely cooler character. Come on, Bo Billingsley such a good performance in this episode mm-hmm. where he says, you know, I, you know, I'm not even mad. I just want to know why. Yeah. There is no doubt in my mind that that's a real person that has been waiting for this answer and is so meek and humble, but just like desperate for the truth. Oh, Bo Billingsley, such a good actor. Well, Colin, that about wraps it up for this episode. And I know Bo Billingsley isn't on Twitter, but guess what? We are. You can find me on Twitter at Steve Cuff. That's at Steve C-U-F-F. And yeah, feel free to shoot me any questions, comments uh, you got about this show. If you want to be like, hey, fuck you, Steve. Uh, quit making fun of anime so much. And I'm like, uh, I'm not. It's a show. I'm, I'm playing things up a little bit. Come on. Uh, and then, Colin, you have Twitter, too. Where do we find you on Twitter? You can find me on Twitter at Dr. Karate Chop. That's at DR Karate Chop. You can also find my video game stuff at YouTube.com slash Video Games Are Dumb or just go to VideoGamesAreDumb.com. Fantastic. And you know what? You're listening to this on the Optimism Vaccine Podcast Network. So if you want to tweet at Optimism Vaccine, you can do that. At Optimism Vaccine. Yell into the void or actually at Jake or Sean whoever's running the account that day go on itunes there's actually a link look it's in the description you just look you just click the link click whatever button says leave a review i haven't done this in a while so i don't actually know five stars and a written review please that helps our visibility the more visible we are the more content we can create for you and also make sure you go to optimismvaccine.com you check out all of our other podcasts all of other cool content we've got articles we've got videos we got podcasts we got everything it's your one-stop thing for stuff for colin tanner i'm steve cuff see you space cowboy Now it's time for spooky things. When we return, we'll scare the pants off of you with a thrilling story of horror. Next episode, Toys in the Attic. Listen if you dare.